Well, good morning. It is a joy to see you guys on this Sunday. Not just any Sunday, but Daylight daylight Saving Sunday. So, hope you guys enjoy that extra hour of sleep. If you're wondering how you were still late, I don't know, right? (laughs) Like, how am I still late this Sunday? I don't know. But we are going to be in 1 Peter 1 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. And then one last announcement for you guys as you're finding your way is uh, we have an event coming up, uh, not this upcoming Thursday, but the next Thursday night in which we call it What's Next. It's going to be a conference, and I'll tell you guys, uh, there's a lot of things flying around. There's a lot of things that we highlight and put in front of you guys, but there's probably... Probably nothing that I've been as excited about this fall as what we're going to try to do on Thursday, November 12th at this What's Next conference. So if you're a senior who's praying to graduate and praying to find a job, this event's for you, all right? If you're a junior or sophomore who's looking at an internship this summer uh, and you're looking at, hey, how is this going to work, this event's for you. If you're a freshman who's just kind of that overachiever, you know who you are and you're thinking about the life after college, this event's for you. Basically, what we're going to do with Mike Schaub, a professor of the Mays Business School, is he's going to give a keynote address that night on how faith relates to career, vocation, and work. I think two topics that we really don't often tie together or know how to integrate well. So we're going to kind of start off with that keynote, and then after that, we're going to have a series of breakouts based on your area of interest. And so uh, we're going to have a series on faith in the workplace, then we're going to break that down by different professions and industries, connecting you with someone who's in that world that you're praying that you might get into one day. And so really excited for what this conference will be. want to highlight it for you guys. I will actually have a little promo video that'll be fun next week with it, and so we'll kind of start pushing it out on social media. But wanted you guys to know what it is. Wanted you guys to know what's coming up or what's next, if you know what I mean there. All right. I just tried that. I did. We'll try other things. They'll be even worse. So just bear with us. All right. But uh, what's next? November 12th coming up. Anderson campus, 7 p.m. that night. We're looking forward to it. First Peter 1, beginning in verse 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. First Peter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, I thank you as we continue on in this series on soteriology or the study of salvation. I thank you for the deep truths of the word of God. I think that really a lifetime of digging into this great book will never stop its transforming work in our lives and will never stop challenging us even intellectually and understanding your ways and what you've revealed. I pray this morning, Lord, as we open, as we talk about some deep things, Lord, I pray that you would guide us. I pray that you'd teach us. I pray that you'd allow my words to be clear, Lord, and I pray that you'd allow us to walk out of here with practical implications of a challenging topic. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. I hope you guys had a great Halloween. I I just will notice from a few events this weekend, it feels like pumpkin carving and costume selections is not really amateur hour anymore. I I saw a few things on social media feeds where you guys were carving pumpkins and it just felt like, oh my gosh, like you could get a job. It was so good, some of you guys. And then even costumes, I'm like, I I think some people are spending some serious money or some serious time because the creativity levels and what we're seeing costume-wise is phenomenal, right? Uh, This is our crew, our family last night, all right? Uh, our little kids are in the middle, Colt, you can tell with the curly hair, you can tell where he gets that. Um, and then our girl is Caroline on the left of him, and then their cousin's on the outside, all right? So these are our kids. We were, we were trick-or-treating last night, had a great time. Uh, and one of the things I want you guys to see, though, is Colt, who's in the middle. I know he's got a skull and crossbones hat, but I don't know, it's what we're going for, all right? But he's into pirates right now, okay? 
he is seriously into pirates. And if you spend any time with our family, one of the things you would quickly recognize right now is that this pirate thing for Colt is not a Halloween thing. Like, like it, it's, a, it's not just a phase right now. It is, it is full-blown obsession, okay? Uh, he wants to dress up as Jake the Pirate, which is a character on a Disney Junior show all the time, okay? He's always wanting to dress up as Jake the Pirate. Everything in his life is a boat, and every flat surface is not land or grass. It's water, okay? And every evil person in the world is Captain Hook. And so everything is kind of imported into that lens as he sees life right now. It's not just a phase. It's a a flat-out obsession. And if you've had him in a class or if you come up to him this morning and you say, hey, Colt, how's it going? Newsflash for you. He's probably going to go, I'm not Colt. I'm Jake the Pirate. It's a little confusing in school. It's a little confusing for Sunday school teachers as he corrects them over and over again. No, no, he's not Colt. He's Jake the Pirate, all right? Now, he's not always wearing the outfit, but you have to understand for him, it creates some confusion. It creates some division with relationships in his life. But for him, this obsession is a full board deal that is frankly now an identity thing for him. It's not a Halloween moment. It's not just a phase. It's a full-blown identity as he's chosen to emulate and imitate somebody else. This morning, we're going to look at a topic that, frankly, I think has led to as much confusion as for my son as he steps into school saying he's Jake the Pirate, and as much division as anything in Christendom in terms of topics as you can find this morning. But it's a topic that, frankly, is meant and God intended it to be way more about our identity than it was meant to be about anything that would lead to confusion or division. And the topic we're going to look at this morning is the topic of election and predestination. So, I've noticed for years, people spend hours on this topic over coffee shops and in dorm rooms, and they usually end with no resolve, okay? Uh, it leads to all kinds of confusion. It sometimes leads to all kinds of division amongst Christendom and amongst Christians themselves. And we can spend hours and hours on the topic, which we're going to spend 25 minutes this morning, all right? So either I'm going to talk really fast, which you know I can do, or we're going to keep it kind of at a 36,000-foot elevation, try to keep kind of at the majors this morning. It's kind of what we're going to try to do. But this topic, I think, is, is a huge one that, frankly, it leads to confusion. It can lead to division. But what God intended it to be was all about identity, which is why I kind of began this in chapter 1, verse 1 of First Peter, because really what Peter is saying as he opens up in a greeting to the churches and the Christians who are scattered abroad is he's going to give them an identity marker. And notice again what he says, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's his identity. Who is Peter? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he's going to write to a people, and he's going to identify them in two different ways. I want you guys to notice the ways, the markers of their identity. The first is that he says that to those who reside as aliens. The first thing that he says to these Christians is that they reside as aliens, as foreigners, or as social outcasts in front of the people of their day. But really, the first thing they would have recognized, as he says, that they are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, is that they are resident aliens. And not just literally in terms of their residential status, as they're scattered off in foreign nations, but even in terms of their identity. They would have recognized that in front of the eyes of men and women, they were outcasts, they were aliens, they were those that were rejected and seen as different. And so on one hand, one of the markers of their identity that was true for this people and for us as well, is not just that in the front of of eyes of men and women that were as resident aliens or as those that are in a sense rejected, but notice the second thing that he says, who are chosen. The second marker of their identity, the second aspect of their identity is that in front of men and women, they were rejected, but in front of the eyes of God, they were chosen. 
They were received. They were brought in. This idea of chosen is where we can get the idea of election and predestination that we're going to spend the morning on. But really, more than anything, is we're going to try to understand it and we're going to try to talk about it more than anything as we think about the idea of what does it mean is this, that it is a marker of our identity, that it says something about who we are if we have a relationship and if we know Jesus Christ. It's a marker of our identity. It tells us who we are. And it's way more than a costume in which we're trying to imitate or identify with someone else that we've chosen. Election predestination is much more like an engagement ring that is a marker of our identity, not because we've chosen someone, but because someone's chosen us. And that's what this idea of election and predestination, in the midst of all the details, as it boils down, that's what we're going to see. That election is like an engagement ring, that it's a marker of our identity, not because necessarily that we've chosen someone, but because someone has chosen us. That's what election is. It's a marker of our identity. And as we jump in, I want you guys to see a series of the aspects of this election. What does election mean? What is it? One of the clearest passages on election and predestination comes in Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to spend a few minutes on this passage because we learn a ton about this idea as we think about what is election. And notice what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1. He says this, Blessed be the God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 6, are probably some of the clearest and most centered in on this idea of election and predestination. Any discussion of these ideas, you cannot miss Ephesians 1. It's absolutely critical. In the midst of all the confusion we have on the topic and in the midst of all of the division that we have on this topic, Ephesians 1 is actually stunningly clear about a lot of things as it relates to election and predestination. I want to highlight those for you. Two different times he's going to refer to it. He chose us and he predestined us. But what about those things? When did these things happen? First thing I want you guys to see is that they happened before the foundation of the world. As you talk about election, as you talk about predestination, and you wonder about when it happened, not just what it is, we begin to think more details about it. When did it happen? It's an act that God had and God did before the foundation of the world. Before he put the world into creation, even before that moment, chronologically speaking, what we find is that he actually already completed this work of election and predestination. That he looked out on some and he chose some before he even created them, before he even created the world. Even more so, I want you guys to see uh, this topic that often brings confusion and division. I want you guys to see what it ought to result in. What is the result of this act of God? Two things. One, that it leads to the adoption as sons for those that are chosen. That those that are chosen, those that are elected and predestined become those that are adopted as sons to God. That's part of our identity. The second thing I want you guys to see, and most significantly, is that when you and I grasp and understand this idea correctly, And when we apply it correctly, here is what it's meant to do in our lives. It results in the praise of the glory of God's grace. This topic results in a lot of things for us. Confusion, division, frustration, fear, anxiety, paralysis, okay? A lot of different things that often I think are because of a misunderstanding about the idea and a misapplication of this doctrine. But when we understand it correctly and when we apply it correctly, this is what it does. It results in the praise of the glory of his grace. It causes us to respond in worship. Realizing that our identity is marked by one who's chosen us, the response is one of worship. 
but why? Why do we worship? A few different details here in Ephesians 1 that I think are so vital. We're going to find out how God actually chose us. How did he predestine us? What is the methods and the manner that led to his choosing? A few things I want to highlight for you guys here from these few verses. One is that God chose us in him. This was an action that was in his own essence. This is what he did. What motivated it? What was the manner of this action? It was one of love. In love, he predestined us. This is the overflow of the love of God. Furthermore, it occurred through Jesus Christ and according to the kind intention of his will. That however you conceive of election and predestination, you and I have to wrestle with Ephesians 1 that says this is the result of the kind intention of the will of God that he freely bestowed on us. This is an absolutely free act of God. Not under compulsion, not under uh, conditions, but absolutely free in love and in kindness. And I think you and I have to reimagine this concept of what God has done because as we look at Ephesians 1, it's not about fear. It's not about compulsion. It's not about uh, uh, obligatory action. This is the kind, loving, free act of God. Ephesians 1 is absolutely huge for us as we begin to grasp what election is and we begin to grasp what we're to do with this idea. How do we understand it? What do we do with it? I want to take you guys back to 1 Peter 1. There's another piece I want to highlight for you because this is where we often get tripped up. This is why I chose 1 Peter 1. Back to 1 Peter 1, beginning at the end of verse 1, it says, who are chosen. But how did God choose us? Verse 2 gives us a clue to that. It says, he chose us according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So we're going to take one incredibly difficult concept and we're going to try to explain it in relationship to an even more difficult concept, the foreknowledge of God. All right, if you haven't gotten your coffee, It's in the back. It's okay if you want to go grab some, all right? Here we go, okay? How does election and foreknowledge relate to one another? Uh, Let me illustrate for you first. Uh, Some of you guys may have realized not last week, but the week before was Back to the Future Day, right? Some of you guys were tracking that and know from that old-time classic movie. Uh, But I think about 10 days ago, I believe, in the movie, for example, they still had the, I think they had the Cubs winning the World Series, all right? And maybe about 10 days ago, the Cubs were still in the playoffs, baseball-wise. They're not now. If you're a Chicago Cubs fan, I apologize. But 10 days ago, it was like, oh my gosh, like, imagine the day that was going to come, October 21st, they had the Cubs winning the World Series, the Cubs are still in the playoffs. Everyone was like, oh my gosh, what did the writers of Back to the Future know? What did they know beforehand, right? 30 years prior that this movie came out, what did they know beforehand? Did they know the Cubs were going to win the World Series? Of course they didn't because the Cubs are now out. It's not going to happen, but it was kind of a cool moment 10 days ago, okay? Foreknowledge is what did God know prior, okay? That's how you define foreknowledge, but the question and the distinction really where we get caught up is this, what did God know beforehand? What exactly is it that God knew beforehand? I'm going to give you guys one verse from the Old Testament, one verse from the New Testament that tries to explain to you what it is that God foreknew so that we can make a connection to how that relates to election. You with me? Jeremiah 1, here's what uh, the prophet says. Before I formed, or this is God speaking to the prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. What is God telling Jeremiah the prophet here? That before he was even shaped and formed, God knew him. God knew him. And there's a distinction between God knowing a person and God knowing that person's actions, which is why Romans tells us even more insightfully this. Speaking of the twins, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purposes according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Okay, what does that mean? 
what Romans 9 really highlights the sovereignty of God, the active election and predestination of God. What it's saying is this, that as God chooses some, what he foreknows as he chooses is the knowledge of a person, but not the knowledge of the person's actions. Are you with me? When God looks into eternity or in eternity past as he looks forward and he foreknows a person and he chooses, he's choosing based on the foreknowledge of the person and not necessarily the person's actions. If God chose based on someone's actions, it's like insider trading, making a stock bet because you know what the stock market's going to do. It's like a sports manager who's in, who knows the injury of a player and makes a sport bet based on the outcome of a game because of information that not everyone has. That's not God's foreknowledge. That's not how God's foreknowledge works. God does not, based on knowledge of actions, make a choice. What God's foreknowledge does as it relates to election is that God is choosing based on knowledge of a person. It's personal. It's not that person's actions. All right? That makes sense? And why is that important? Why does that even matter whatsoever? As we think about election, as we think about predestination, really it's super important as we think about the fact that God chose not based on a sense of what we would do one day. God didn't choose before we had good or bad actions. God didn't choose us based on what he knew we would one day do. God chose us based on knowledge of us, of a person. Let me go back to the engagement ring. When Marcy and I promised to spend an eternity with each other and we said, I do it on an altar, we made a promise to one another that had future conditions. But did I know that day what my wife would do for the next 30, 40, 50 years of marriage? No. We made a promise to one another but I have no guarantee of actions, right? I just know her as a person. As God looks into from eternity past and he looks and has foreknowledge of a person, he has a foreknowledge of an individual that he says, I want you. I choose you. It's out of love. It's out of freeness. And it's out of the kind intention of his will, not out of an insider trading based on knowing what someone's going to do one day. That makes sense? That's contrary to love. That's with condition. That's not out of kindness. That's not out of love. That's not out of grace. That's a good bet. And that's where this diverges, and that's where it's different. So if you know Jesus Christ this morning, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then what the Bible says of you is that you are one who was chosen, who was predestined from eternity past to have a relationship with the Creator God. What do you and I do with that? A lot of things we do with that. The first thing I want to highlight for you, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, is that you would feel that you rest secure. That in the midst of a pursuit in a world that you want to know if you're valuable, you want to know if you're loved, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, then you can have confidence that you are because he chose you. Not on the basis of what you would do one day, but he chose you in love and in grace freely. And in a world that sees the believer in Jesus Christ as an outcast, that is one of the most comforting and encouraging things and truths you will ever hear. You were chosen, that he knew you, and that he loved you, and he wanted a relationship with you. It's interesting. Uh, one of my favorite quotes on this topic is, someone says, that which we have turned into a puzzle to our minds was originally intended to be a pillow for our hearts. This idea of election, this idea of predestination, we've made it into a puzzle to try to figure out, but God never intended it to be an intellectual puzzle. He intended it to be a pillow that was an encouragement to our hearts. And somehow we've twisted it and we've gotten it off. Second thing for us is if we, as we begin to understand and really wrestle with what this means, uh, that we begin to rest, wrestle with it, the appropriate response if we know Jesus Christ is one of worship and praise. As Ephesians 1.6 says, that we respond in the praise of the glory of his grace. How do we apply predestination and election? One, we rest secure in his grip 
if we know him. And second of all, we respond in worship if we know him. But that's not getting us all the way down into where a lot of us struggle intellectually, okay? Because really the big question for a lot of us is not necessarily what does it mean, but for a lot of us it's how does this thing work, okay? How does it work? And specifically what people are asking is you have God's sovereignty on one hand and you have man's will on another. How does God's sovereignty and how does man's will fit together in this topic of election and predestination? That's where a lot of us get tripped up. (laughs) Ephesians 1 is kind of easy to see uh, when God did this. It's easy to see what he did. It's easy to see how he did it. But really, what we really get tripped up on is this issue of how does God's sovereignty and man's will fit together, okay? That really highlights a a word I'm going to throw out to you guys, which is the word antinomy, all right? Probably not a word you hear a lot, but antinomy means this. It's two things that are true in and of themselves, but when you put them together, it's really impossible to reconcile how they fit. Also known as a paradox, okay? So we can look at the scriptures and easily affirm that God is sovereign. We can easily look at the scriptures and affirm that man has a will that he's called to act upon. But the question for us, the challenge for us, is how does God's sovereignty and man's will, how do they fit together, okay? That's where all the division and the confusion comes, and that's where we're going to try to go here in the next 10 minutes. But for many people, the way that they kind of walk through this is a few verses that I'll highlight for you that kind of evidence the antinomy, okay? John chapter 1, verse 12, John writes this. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If you read John chapter 1, verse 12, and you think about this idea of coming into relationship with Jesus Christ, of conversion and believing the gospel, is that the act of God or is it the act of man? John 1, 12 seems to put it as the act of man, right? As many as received him, even to those who believed in his name, that man is the actor and his action is reception and belief. But then notice verse 13. Then John turns the corner and says, Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Oh, man. (laughs) Is it God or is it man? Well, verse 12 says man. Verse 13 is clearly God. How does those fit together? How do you square verse 12 with verse 13? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how you square those, okay? Let me give you another example. Uh, Moving from the idea of conversion or that moment where we first trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins to that moment that is a process in which we continue to walk with Jesus after we've trusted in Christ. This is the process that we refer to as sanctification. We'll talk more about this in our series this fall. In that process of sanctification, you're going to see the same tension that exists between God's sovereignty and man's will. Notice Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul tells the believer, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Is that God deal or is that a man deal? Seems like it's a man deal, right? Paul's telling the man or the, or the people, hey, this is your job. You need to work out your salvation like being at a gym. You need to develop these muscle groups. But then notice what he says. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, Paul, you're killing me, man. <laughs> is it man or is it God? It's both, okay? It's both. What most of us do as we hit this I- issue is that we move to typically what is in more of an either or position and not a both and position. Let me illustrate it like this. Uh, this past Wednesday night, I had an opportunity to go out with some buddies for accountability, and because we're grown and we're sophisticated, we go to Excel. <laughs> Cafe Excel, that's where we do accountability, right? And so we go there post-bedtime, post-dinner, and so it's kind of like dessert moment or snack moment, and so we're looking at the menu, me and a few, uh, three or four guys, and we're wrestling with what we're going to get. And the other guys that are at the table, because they're novices at this kind of thing, they're wrestling between either salty or sweet, all right? Which, of course, for me, I go, 
either or, why would you do that? Both and, all right? You get the chips and queso, I'll get the tart at Cafe Excel, and then we're all going to be happy, all right? Because you don't have to go either or. Why go either or when you can go both and, all right? Same thing exists in menus as it does with theology, all right? Learn, all right? It's not either or, it's going to be a both and. And what I want to show you is where most theological positions go is going to be to an extreme of an either or position, all right? Some, most people are going to basically have one of God's sovereignty or one of man's will swallow the other and consume the other so that only one exists, all right? Let me kind of illustrate that and explain that for you. Um, Three different views on this issue. First is this, a view known as Arminianism, all right? Here's what Arminianism says. Arminianism says that God looked in eternity past and he chose some men and women based on knowledge of what they would do. So he looks forward in eternity future and he sees that some men will choose him and believe in him and so he elects them. Okay, you with me? And so he elects based on knowledge of what man will do, which really means the emphasis is on man. That God's sovereignty is really just a puppet to what man is going to do. Man's will consumes God's sovereignty in Arminianism. The great emphasis in Arminianism is upon man. How do you convert a man in Arminianism? You put him on an altar, or you put him on a pew, you, you preach really long to him, you raise the music up really high, you have an altar call, and you make him uncomfortable, and you convince his stubborn will to believe. Those are elements of the first great awakening that came and are imported into some of our church traditions that you know. It's this emphasis on just a convincing the stubborn will of man to believe. And in Arminianism, that's what you did. Man is just not depraved, he's just stubborn. He just needs convincing. And if you can convince him, if he can choose, then he will choose, and then God will bless him. And in Arminianism, not just, that's not just how you come into a relationship with Christ. You can opt in, or you can choose to opt out. You can lose your salvation in Arminianism as well. The great emphasis in Arminianism is on the will of man. And in that sense, it's a movement of an either-or position in which man's will swallows God's sovereignty. God, in a sense, in his will is just a puppet that man is pulling. That make sense? Oversimplification in the short time we have. All right, that's Arminianism. Uh, a second view, moving to the other extreme, is, and again, you're going to see me put an a adjective out here, extreme Calvinism, okay? Some of you guys are Calvinistic, and you claim to be Calvinistic, but you really don't know what that means. <laughs> and you don't even know how to support it necessarily, biblically speaking, but some of you guys identify with that position, because a lot of the people that you love to listen to really kind of come from this reformed and Calvinistic persuasion. Some of your most popular podcasters that are out there in some of the big cities, they come from this position, which is a great emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Arminianism is going to emphasize the will of man. Calvinism is going to emphasize the will and the sovereign will of God. All right? But extreme Calvinism is going to emphasize it to such an extent that I'm going to argue with you guys that it consumes and swallows whole the will of man. In a sense, if, uh, if in Arminianism, uh, God became a puppet that, the will of, uh, that man's will kind of pulled, uh, the, the table flitch, uh, sw- switches, and in extreme Calvinism, what you have happening is God is so sovereign that man is just a robot, and whatever God sovereignly decrees, man will do. Okay, God's sovereignty swallows whole man's will in extreme Calvinism. In a short amount of time, I'm painting with broad strokes, okay? But I'm trying to show you kind of the lay of the land that not all people are extreme Calvinists, okay? But as you kind of walk through this tension of God's sovereignty and man's will to these two different extremes, what you have happening is a movement in which you have an either-or choice. 
God is sovereign. Man is, has a will that he's held accountable. How these fit together, we're not sure. And so we don't like tensions that we can't resolve. And so we'll, we'll prop one up so highly that it just, in a sense, consumes the other. In Arminianism, the will of man consumes the sovereignty of God. In extreme Calvinism, I'll, I'll submit to you guys that the, sovereign, the sovereignty of God swallows whole the will of man. Whatever God decrees, man will do. Man cannot resist that will. And yet, even as you look at your scriptures, obviously we see that man can resist the will of God. The scriptures tell us that we can quench the spirit. We can resist the will of God. We see genuine believers who end their life not with a great amount of good works, that will face judgment, that apparently it seems like the will of God can be thwarted in some elements and in some measures. But then there's other aspects of the will of God that can't be thwarted, that he will work human history to an ultimate climax no matter how disobedient and resistant man is, that somehow in his sovereignty, he uses the will of man to accomplish his purposes. And how does that mystery work? And how does those fit together? I don't know. But I'm okay with maintaining a tension that allows both to stand strong on their, <laughs> on their own. And they somehow meet in ways I cannot articulate or nail down. For us as a church, the, the moderating, the mediating position in our mind is one that we call the free grace position. Uh, as, a gra- as Grace Bible Church, if you want to categorize us, we don't fall under Arminianism. We don't fall under extreme Calvinism. We fall kind of in a moderating position in our minds in which we highlight the sovereignty of God. We believe that he is sovereign. We also highlight the will of man, that we believe that the will of man, he, he, he plays a role in making choices that he's held accountable for. And there are times as we think about how sovereign God is or how autonomous man is, that man actually can push against the will of God. That man can sin, that man can thwart what God may want to do in their own personal lives, but still God somehow still accomplishes his global will of what he wants to accomplish in the world. How do those things fit together? I don't know. (laughs) The tension is difficult. And I think for many that move to an either-or position, they've removed the tension. And whenever you remove the tension, as you see from John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, whenever you remove the tension, I think you've landed in a place that is unbiblical. It may be as easy theologically to grasp it and hold it, but it doesn't seem to be what the scriptures are saying. So what do we do with this? Where do we go with this? Um, One of my favorite quotes comes from Spurgeon, who was once asked, how do you reconcile sovereignty and free will? And here's what he said, you don't have to reconcile friends. There's a tension that exists between them and how they meet up in the middle together, I don't grasp and I can't grasp because it's... (laughs) One of these doctrines that lands us in a place that we realize that our logical abilities to understand all that God has revealed is limited. Even Peter would write, and Peter would say that some of Paul's writings were complicated and hard to grasp. So here you have an inspired spokesperson for God reading what Paul has written, and Peter's scratching his head going, man, I I don't get it. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure what he was communicating. Did that mean that it wasn't true? No. No. What it meant is that there are some things in the revealed word of God that are so complicated that in our own finite minds, we may never grasp exactly how they fit together. We may never be able to plumb the depths of what God has revealed. And it is in these moments we realize how glorious and unsearchable are the ways of God. It's in these moments that we bend down in some humility and we recognize, you know what? You have revealed so much. And honestly, I cannot always get my mind grasped and wrapped all the way around what you've said. There are things that I may take a lifetime to continue to plumb the depths of, to grasp and to understand, and it's in that place that I go, it's great to have some tensions. It's great to realize that there are some things that you may never fully grasp that you may still be wrestling with for a lifetime. 
It's not that God doesn't want to reveal. It's not that God doesn't want to help you understand things, but it helps you grasp that much of who he is, much of the way that he works, there's still some things that we may never fully grasp until we're in his presence, seeing him face to face. And that in this place and in this time when there's a veil still over us, we walk seeing partly, but looking forward to a day that we'll see fully. One of my favorite other passages in this uh, vein and in this topic, it comes in 2 Timothy, because I think it's an incredible, helpful verse in this section and in this topic. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, I want you guys to look at it at your tables when we break here. Incredible moment that Paul highlights the truth of the sovereign will of God, the election and the predestination of God. But in that moment, in light of that truth, he then speaks of the fact that why he does evangelism. That he connects the truthfulness of the sovereignty of God and election and predestination to his motive for doing evangelism. Incredible passage in which you and I begin to wrestle with God has sovereignly elected But in the midst of that sovereign election, he still calls his church to go out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, utilizing the obedience and the will of man to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And he utilizes and works within those who've never heard it before to respond to it. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, the question is not, are you elect or are you not elect? The question for you, if even if you know Jesus Christ and you're sharing the gospel with people who may not know Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about whether they're elect or not elect question that you have to really wrestle with, what you really have to have in the conversation if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning is, what do you do with Jesus? Don't worry about this election business and this predestination stuff. This is what I call a rear view doctrine. This is something that doesn't help you look forward, but it's something that helps you provide perspective as you look backward at what God has already done and you see it in the rear view, not as you're trying to figure out a path going forward. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, where you go and what you do is you wrestle with Jesus. The series that we're having on salvation, wrestling with the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected, that he claimed to be God and he claimed to be man. Don't worry about the predestination stuff. Focus in on who he is and what he's done. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he died and gave his life so that you could live, that you could have eternal life, that you could have your sins forgiven? That's the most important decision. That's the most important thing that you need clarity on for your whole life. It's not election, it's not predestination. That's where you start. And for you guys that have friends or have family that you're not sure whether they know Jesus Christ, you're not sure, you're wrestling with whether they're elect or not, don't worry about it. (laughs) Share the gospel. God knows these things and God will work these things out as he sees fit. And that issue can create so much paralysis and fear for us and it need not. What it's meant to do is create in us worship. It's meant to create in us a response of rest in him. And it's meant to be a motivation for us to reach out as well. 2 Timothy 2.10 will highlight this truthfulness and a motivation for Paul that caused him to move out, to lay his life down so that others could hear the gospel. And it's meant to do the same for us. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come before you this morning and we recognize there are topics, Lord, that are beyond our comprehension, that are beyond my ability to explain perfectly, <laughs> like most Sundays. Um, but Lord, we just come before you, especially on a morning like this, and we say, Lord, help us to grasp what you've revealed. Help us to grasp what it is you want us to see. And Lord, for many of us that get stuck on some of the details, Lord, and and get stuck in a place that we want to remove the tension that we see logically, Lord, help us to not go there. Help us to affirm a strong view of sovereignty and a strong view of the will of man and help us to hold them in attention that we see in your scriptures. And Lord, for those of us who know you this morning, Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a restfulness and a security in your presence knowing that you looked from eternity past even before you created us and you chose us. 
And that says more to us than any other approval of man that we'll ever get or any achievement about who we are and about our identity. For some of us too, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, in that place and in this truthfulness, respond in worship knowing that you moved and you acted freely and in love and in kindness. And with that identity marked, Lord, I pray that you allow us to respond with a robust and a vibrant worship in light of what you've done on our behalf. And I pray to you, Lord, as we look at a city, as we look at a community, many who do not know you, and nations that do not know you, Lord, I pray that we would be motivated, even in light of this doctrine, to move out and to speak forth the words of the gospel, trusting that you will work in ways and in hearts and where we cannot see and that we cannot even guarantee. And I pray that you allow us to be faithful. I pray that you allow us to be motivated. I pray that you allow us to see where your worship doesn't exist and that we'd move in those places that we bring the gospel, we bring light, and we bring grace, we bring truth and love into the lives of those who may not know you at all. Lord, I pray that you allow our responses to be correct, even sometimes as our understanding is off or limited. Help us to respond as you've called us, even when we're confused, and even when we can't grasp the entirety of things when our minds can't wrap around entirely. Lord, help us to respond rightly. I pray to you even for our time at tables and our discussions, Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to not move beyond what your text says, do not move beyond what, your word, what the word has revealed, Lord, but I pray that you allow us to wrestle afresh with these ideas. I pray that our conversations would be gracious, not offensive, that they would be unifying, not divisive. And I pray that you gave us a great time, not only in discussion, but a great time over lunch as well. As we wrestle with hard topics, as we jump into what your word has revealed, Lord, I pray for a rich time. I pray for a refreshing time. And I pray you allow our community and our relationships to deepen uh, through lunch and through the time that we have today, Lord. Lord, we ask for these things through your, through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, you guys have a great time over discussion. And then about 1220, I'll come back up. I'll pray for our lunch. And then we'll let you guys know what we're doing and how to do that. All right?